Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Thank you very much, very much, Ben, in the Pacific Northwest for a time to be with family. It was my wife, uh, my mother-in-law's, should I say this out loud, her 60th birthday. Um, Really sweet lady, um, godly lady, one of the godliest uh, ladies I've ever met in my life. And uh, so blessed to have she and Walt as my parents-in-laws. But uh, when I was there, I missed you and couldn't wait to get back here with you. So I'm glad to be with you. And uh, in preparation for our series in the book of Daniel, which, believe it or not, is coming in in December, uh, what we wanted to do was, as Rich mentioned, a a three-week mini-series on the Messiah in the Old Testament called The Return of the King. The Return of the King, that's the name of the series. And the reason why we want to do this series is because part of uh, any well-balanced breakfast for a church on a Sunday morning has to include uh, spending time in that 600,000-word document called the Old Testament. And it's good for us, it's good and healthy and nutritious for us as a church to spend time in the prophets, eating the meal that they have prepared for us. And, and speaking of the, the prophets, the Prophets, without question, had the most thrilling and the most dangerous job in history. I mean that. The prophets had the most thrilling and the most dangerous job in history. I mean, nothing was more thrilling, nothing was more exciting than being a prophet in the Bible. Think about it. Some people get to travel for their jobs, and and, and some people even get to go to the moon for their job, but the prophets they got to travel to another dimension. Some people get to meet the president and rub shoulders with the greatest leaders on the planet. The prophets got to meet majestic angelic beings and and were terrified when they saw them. And they even got to have direct conversations with God himself. Some people are entrusted with the launch codes for nuclear weapons. The prophets were entrusted with the very oracles of God, which are more explosive and powerful than anything man could ever devise. Some people, like Rich, are entrusted with secrets of national security. The prophets were entrusted with secrets of eternal security. They had the fabric of reality torn open and they got to see the plan of God unfolding in human history and they had the security clearance to tell the world about what they saw. And so you have to understand that this is this, to be a prophet is a thrilling occupation and yet having said that, I, I don't want to give the impression that being a prophet was all glitz and glam because to be totally honest, there was no glitz and there was no glam. You see, this occupation of being a prophet with all of its kickbacks and thrills and and fringe benefits, you have to understand, it came with unbelievable risks and dangers to your life. Because you have to understand, and you you see this, no one was called to be a prophet when everything was hunky-dory, were they? God never called people to show up and pat people on the backs and hand out gold stars for good behavior. No prophet in the history of the world was ever called to rally the troops and and give high fives and tell everybody that it was business as usual. Rather, prophets only showed up on the scene when there was a spiritual crisis in the land. When things were an absolute disaster, when people were drunk with sin and inebriated by idolatry, the only reason why prophets showed up to the party was to crash the party 
and to let them know that it was not business as usual. God's judgment was coming. You see, the prophets are like spiritual paramedics who show up to a crash scene, not only to fix the gaping wounds and stop the bleeding, but also to yank people out of their cars before it exploded. You see, their job was to take a spiritual two-by-four of reality and clobber upside the head people who had been in a spiritual coma for decades. And yet, and yet, sometimes... Sometimes being a prophet also included giving people a microscopic glimpse of the King and Messiah to come. Who one day, mark my words, is going to show up to the planet, establish his invincible kingdom, liberate the human race from the grip of evil and sin, and one day he is going to make all things be the way they ought to. To be. That is the calling and the job of a prophet. And that King and Messiah, as you know, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And almost no one in the Old Testament, almost no one got to talk about Jesus Christ more than the prophet Isaiah himself, who talked about the arrival and appearance of Jesus Christ over 2,700 years before he even showed his face on the planet. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty sweet gig for a prophet. And you have to understand the people in Isaiah's day, the people of Israel and Judah, they were in desperate need of reality. I mean, you have to understand the people of the, the land of Israel was an absolute train wreck in Isaiah's day. Godlessness, hopelessness, cluelessness filled the land like a plague. All signs seemed to indicate that all of God's promises were about to bounce like a bad check. The God of Israel looked cornered and weak. The gods of the nations looked fierce and invincible. The king of Judah was a coward and a fool, and he was on the brink of a political maneuver that had the potential to bring the entire country into absolute disaster, bringing all of God's promises crashing to the ground. You have to understand, these are dark and dismal days in Israel. And if you were living in Israel in those days, you also would be tempted. You also would be tempted to forget who's in charge, what actually matters, what truly satisfies, where human history is headed, and who alone you could trust to save the world. You also would be tempted to forget the happily ever after of a king who would come and restore the paradise to the planet, which was lost by our first parents in the beginning, because that is reality. And maybe, just maybe, the fear and the anxiety and the struggles and the pain and the despair and maybe even the depression in your life is there precisely because, just like Israel, you also have forgotten. I mean, maybe. You are enchanted by the fairy tales of a life that do not include Christ at the center. Maybe you've been seduced by the romance novels and science fiction stories of the American dream that ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction can be found outside of Jesus Christ. Or maybe, maybe for you, life is as bleak as a Shakespeare play where everybody kills themselves in the end to escape the pain. And my point is, none of that is true. 
Real though those stories may feel in the moment, none of those are reality because reality is what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation and your lives are a part of that story. I mean, even if Isaiah doesn't say one word about your particular struggles directly this morning, he will nevertheless, mark my words, give you the theological infrastructure you need to handle anything in your lives. Why? Because what he's going to give you is Christ and he is reality. So here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three features of the God King. Three features of the God King, Jesus Christ, that prove him to be everything you could need or possibly want forever. That's where we're going. Three features of the God King, Jesus Christ, that prove him to be everything you could need or possibly want forever. That's where we're headed. But you see, you have to understand something. Uh, one of the things that makes chapter 9 so exhilarating is that the chapter before it is absolutely depressing. In fact, what chapter 8 predicts is nothing less than the wholesale destruction of the entire country. In fact, 10 years, 10 years after this chapter was written, the king of Assyria marches into the northern kingdom of Israel and takes the people into exile as slaves in 722 B.C., 150 years after this chapter was written, the king of Babylon would invade the southern kingdom and he would simply level Jerusalem to the ground. They would rip people out of their homes, take them captives back into Babylon. I mean, eventually, you know, the people do come out of Babylon. They hobble out, discouraged and in complete despair. That's what chapter eight predicts. But you see, the game is not over. Not for Israel, not for us, because in chapter 9, something happens. Something changes. The sour note of judgment starts to fade, and the sweet melody of sovereign grace begins to play. The gloom of despair slowly evaporates, and the warmth of the dawn breaks just over the horizon, and you can see it in chapter 9, verse 1. Look at your Bibles, look at the text. It says, but there shall be no more gloom to her who had anguish. As in the former time when he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But finally, he shall make it glorious. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And maybe you're thinking, Jared, what, what are you so excited about? What is he even talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the northern kingdom of Israel, the worst of the two kingdoms, by the way. And get this, he's pointing to a time centuries in the future when God would intervene and he would take the train wreck of Israel and he would fill it once again with his glory. Glory would reign in Israel. Redemption would come restoration would be accomplished. And yet, I want you to notice something. Adam alluded to it before he read the scripture. Notice what God calls that land in verse one. Notice what he says. He calls that area Galilee of the nations or Galilee 
of the Gentiles. Think about it. Glory would come to Galilee. I mean, if you've read the Gospels, is this beginning to sound familiar? Because it should. The question is, what does this even mean? Well, look at verse 2. Still talking about Galilee. Isaiah says, the people who walk in the darkness, and you can even translate it, shall see a great light. And the people who are living in the valley of the shadow of death, a light shall shine on them. Glory and light in Galilee. Isaiah, throw us a bone here. What are you even talking about? No, not what. Who? Who are you talking about? Because you know that when Isaiah talks about light, he is not talking about photon particles or electromagnetic radiation. He is talking about a person, a divine redeemer who himself will be and is the light. Because get this, 700 years later when Jesus Christ is in Galilee proclaiming the kingdom, Matthew is watching this unfold. And he thinks, golly, this sure sounds familiar. Where have I seen this before? And guess what text he quotes? Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Listen to Matthew chapter 4. Listen, listen very carefully. And listen for the key words that intersect with ours. It says, Jesus departed for Galilee. And after leaving Nazareth, he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? In order to fulfill the word through Isaiah the prophet, which says, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sitting in the darkness have seen a great light. And from then, Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom. See, the point is, get this now, it was grace to begin in Galilee. It was grace. The armpit of Israel, the most despised people of the land, and Christ begins his ministry there. And maybe, just maybe, just like Israel, you also have grown cold and distant from God this morning. And maybe you have drifted so far out to sea away from God, you think there's no way to come back. There's no way to escape from the sins that have entangled you. Is that how you feel this morning? Are you trapped in the darkness? Are you enveloped in the shadows, the shadows of sin, the shadows of despair, the shadows of discouragement? You need to hear this loud and clear. It's not too late. The light has come. I'm being totally serious with you. Jesus Christ has come. And there's nothing that can't be overcome by sovereign grace. Jesus Christ is present right now in his word, ready to renovate your lives in ways never before believed possible. But I digress. Look where Isaiah goes in verse 3 because the prophets are not widely known for talking about joy, but that's only because we're not reading them nearly close enough. Look what Isaiah says. He's talking to God. Look what he says. He says, you shall multiply their nation. You shall make their joy great. 
They shall rejoice before you like the joy in the harvest when they shout for joy, when they divide plunder. Do you see what he says? One day, one day, joy is going to fill the land of Israel. And he says they're going to shout for joy at the top of their lungs, intense and uncontainable, as if they had just discovered a treasure of infinite value. The question is, what is it that's going to fill them with joy? What is it exactly that's going to make them so happy? And in verses 4 through 7, Isaiah gives three reasons, three explanations for uncontainable joy, and each of these reasons build upon the other until they finally culminate in the King and Messiah to come. Verse 4, reason number one. Reason number one for joy is because one day God is going to crush all enemies, tyrants, and oppressors. That's not merely what we would like to see happen. That is actually going to happen. Tyrants and terrorists of the world, beware. Your days are numbered. That's verse four. And then in verse five, the second reason for joy, he describes the end of all war and bloodshed. Look at the text. Isaiah describes a time when combat boots and and, uh, military uniforms covered in blood are thrown into the fire and burned. And the point is one day, one day there will be no war. There will be no fear. There will be no threats. There will be no military. Atomic bombs will be dismantled and made into other things. The prophets describe a time when swords will be hammered into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Mark my words, the days of war ending are coming. And at this point, more practically minded Israelites are wondering, okay, well, it sounds good. And it's one thing, Isaiah, to make all these kinds of prophets uh, predictions and, and prophecies, but it's a whole other ballgame to actually make these things happen. I mean, is God writing checks that his power can't cash here? I mean, does God have a plan for how he's actually going to fulfill everything that he's promised? How is any of this actually ever going to happen? And what that does is brings us to the third reason for joy. And yet, what that actually does is it brings us to our first feature of the God King. Our first feature of the God King that proves him to be everything you could need or want forever. This is point number one. Here it is. The first feature of the God King is first his unprecedented arrival. His unprecedented arrival. So here it is. Here's the reason. Here's the reason why glory and joy and light will fill the land of Israel. Here is the secret weapon of the entire plan of salvation. Here it is. Look at verse 6. Look what Isaiah says. He says, For a child shall be born to us, a son shall be given to us. Stop there. Do, Do you feel how ironic this is? Wait, Isaiah, I'm sorry. Um, You just got my hopes up that one day will be the end of all war and bloodshed and oppression. You just got my hopes up that one day glory and light and joy are going to fill the planet. And yet what I think I hear you saying is that who I should pin all of my hopes on to make that happen is a kid. (laughs) Really? 
because it is interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. If you watch the culture very closely, you know that all kinds of movies and sitcoms and TV shows now have children as the heroes. Have you noticed this? Bumbling dads and manic moms who are foolish and and old-fashioned and narrow-minded, they have to learn the deepest lessons of life from their children who are now the moral compass of the family. Have you noticed this? And that's weird, and that's ridiculous. And this would be weird and ridiculous too if if Genesis 3.15 hadn't have predicted that one day a child would come from the human race and crush the serpent's head. It would be ridiculous if, if 2 Samuel 7 didn't predict that a child would come from David's line and he would have an eternal kingdom and reign forever. It would be ridiculous if two chapters earlier, Isaiah hadn't predicted that a virgin would give birth to a son and that son would be God himself in human flesh. That would be ridiculous. But it's not. It's not ridiculous. Rather, this 2,700-year-old prophecy is the foundation of everything we believe. And yet, there is something profound about this, isn't there? That the Savior of the human race, who is both fully and eternally God, that He would not show up in a cloud of glory, or in the form of a burning bush, he would not show up with lightning and peals of thunder, but rather the infinite God would emerge onto human history as a helpless baby who needed his diaper changed. So you see what Isaiah's done here, don't you? He has just given us a microscopic glimpse into one of the most profound mysteries there is. God without ever ceasing for one moment to be fully God, became fully man. God became what he was not without ever ceasing to be what he always had been. In other words, God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. He was fully man living, feeling, breathing, experiencing. If you cut him, he would bleed. If you crucified him, he would die. But the infinite difference between he and every other human being is that this human being was God. And you see, what this does is that this tells you is that the one who came to save you, get this now, personally experienced all of the agonies of being human and yet never once did he cave to sin. Not one single time ever. From infancy to terrible twos to the terribler teens to the roaring twenties into his thirties, he not only experienced more temptation brutal than you can possibly imagine, but he came out of it completely unscathed. So here's the payoff. Here's what this matters for you. The reason this matters to you is because it tells us that Christ is not only able to sympathize with your weaknesses, but that he himself also is able to deliver you. You see, Christ is not some unsympathetic slave master 
No, he is our sympathetic high priest who experienced all of the agonies of being human. He knows, he gets it, he knows exactly what you need as a human because he himself became a human and lived it all. And so here's the question for you right now. What are those struggles in your life right now for which you just assume there can be no victory? What are those struggles right now in your life where you know, if you're honest with yourself, deep down this afternoon, if tempted with those things, you know you're going to give in? And probably without much resistance, what are those things? Because you need to hear this loud and clear. In Christ, real, authentic, satisfying victory over sin is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable Reality. Why? Because you have a high priest. Fully God and fully man and he is ready to meet you in his word and deliver you. But then you notice that Isaiah all of a sudden pulls us through a time warp. He skips the toddler and teenage stage, brings us right into adulthood because you have to understand this wasn't just some child prodigy. He wasn't only destined for greatness. He was destined for a kingdom. Look at verse six. Look what he says. He says, for a child shall be born to us. A son shall be given to us. Here it is. And the dominion shall be on his shoulders. Do do you see what Isaiah has revealed about the deliverer to come? He wouldn't only be human. He would rule human history. That word dominion or government in your Bibles, that means authority. That means supremacy. That means royal power and sovereignty. And yet you notice, notice very carefully at the text, you notice that the word doesn't actually have an object, does it? Isaiah doesn't actually say what he's actually going to rule over. And so I think the implication is he's going to rule it all. Absolutely everything. If it exists, he has dominion over it. Make no mistake here this morning, every inch of the universe is owned and ruled by Jesus Christ. He bears on his shoulders the burden that no one else is able to bear, like ruling the universe, for instance, which means you don't have to. And I know I live in the same world you do. I have a human heart just like you do. I know that in a room, even even this small, I know that in this room are hundreds of burdens and you don't have the capacity to bear them. Sin burdens, marriage burdens, parenting burdens, job burdens, money burdens, crushing you under their weight. And yet my question for you is, when you are tempted with despair, do do you know what to do? When you are suffocated by fear and anxiety and, and whatever else, do you have something in place that will help you? Because usually our default instinct response is to think that when in times of crisis, the last thing we need is theology. And yet I'm here to say to you, that, it, say to you, that is exactly what you need. When you are crushed Under fear and despair, you need to ask yourself very particular questions that only have yes for the answer. For instance, does Jesus Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? 
Yes. Is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Absolutely. Does Jesus Christ uphold the universe by the word of his power? Of course he does. Is every single moment of my life under the absolute undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ? Absolutely it is. And is this moment of which the outcome seems so uncertain, is even this a design from his hand to trust him for the impossible and will it in the end work out for his glory and for my highest joy? You know the answer. That is exactly what's going to happen. Why? Because the God King has the dominion. Which brings us to the second feature of the God King. The second feature of the God King, number two, his unrivaled identity. His unrivaled identity. You know, I I love films about undercover cops. For me, there's just something so thrilling and and exciting about going under deep cover, risking your life, pretending to be someone you're not, trying to bring the enemy down to the ground from the inside out. That is an incredibly, that's that's an excellent plot for a film. And yet I think we'd agree that the incarnation, Jesus Christ coming to the planet to save the very people who sinned against him, I think we'd all agree that is the ultimate undercover operation. And yet the difference between Christ and undercover cops is that when Christ showed up, he didn't pretend to be somebody he's not, did he? When he showed up to the planet, he came to reveal precisely who he really is and who he really is. Isaiah makes, puts on full display for us in verse 6. Look at the text. It says, For a child shall be born to us, a son shall be given to us, and the dominion shall be on his shoulders. Here it is. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There it is. There's the identity of the God King. And yet you notice that Isaiah lets us know that he doesn't only have one name, he has four names. And yet these aren't names in the birth certificate sense of the term. Rather, these are titles. These are revelations. These are manifestations of his holy character. These titles prove him to be that everything you could need or possibly want or ask for or desire is found only in him. And so let's walk through the names. Name number one. Isaiah says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. And it's interesting, counselors are a dime a dozen these days, aren't there? Guidance counselors, grief counselors, financial counselors, biblical counselors. And the reason why you have so many is because there's not one single person who has all the answers. But here, finally, is one who does. And, and we all hate know-it-alls, don't we? We hate know-it-alls because they don't know it all and yet they think they do and that's what makes them so useless and yet here finally is a know-it-all who really knows it all. Here finally is the one who has the answers for everything because he himself is the answer to everything. 
You see, Isaiah is picturing a king who when he shows up, he will have the exact right solution to the deepest, most tangled complexities of the human soul. He will solve the deepest dilemmas of life. He will, he will tie up every single loose end of history, solve every problem, and restore the paradise which was lost. That is the wonderful counselor. And what you have to understand is that the deepest, most tangled complexities of your soul do not have to wait to become untangled. You don't have to wait till he returns to get them untangled. Do you know why? Because the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, right now meets you, mediates his wisdom and power to you in the form of a book. See, Jesus Christ is insanely interested in renovating your lives and how he does so is through an 800,000 word document called the sacred text of Holy Scripture. You see, things happen when you get the word of God absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul. Things happen. All the joyful thriving and victory over those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that never seem to go away is found precisely in the moment-by-moment, second-by-second dependence upon the wonderful counselor through his word. Name number two. Name number two, the Messiah to come who has come and who will come again. Isaiah says that his name is Mighty God. Mighty God. Think about it. Jesus Christ is God. This is one of the clearest, if not the clearest, demonstrations of the deity of Christ found in the entirety of the Bible. Jesus Christ is God. And yet notice how deliciously redundant this title is. Isaiah didn't have to call him mighty God, did he? He didn't have to do that because to call him God already just assumes that he is mighty. But to call him mighty God just puts explicitly on the table that the one in whom we place all of our hope is not merely some rabbi who did nice things for people, but the infinite God who spoke galaxies into existence. And so when we see Christ in the Gospels changing the molecular structure of water into wine, when we see him multiplying enough food to feed a football stadium or walking on water or controlling hurricane winds with his mind powers or healing diseases from another zip code or raising rotting corpses out of their tombs, what we are seeing is a glimpse of what Isaiah means when he calls him mighty God. And why this matters to you right now in your lives where you're at is because as the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ is not only able to diagnose the deepest issues of your soul as the mighty God. He alone is able to cure them. You see, you need to understand right now that if you are in Christ, his power to create the stars, to calm the storm, to feed the 5,000, to raise the dead, to tear the veil, not o- and not only that, but to establish his kingdom is being funneled down to you right this very second through the very book that you're holding in your hands. Name number three. Name number three, the great God King to come is not only wonderful counsel, he's not only mighty God, but Isaiah goes on to say that he is eternal 
Father or Father of Eternity or Father Forever. And the point, the point is not to say that He is the Father because He's not. He is God the Son. The point is He loves and rules and leads His people like a Father. You see, you have to understand, Christ is not some distant jack-in-the-beanstalk giant or some ogre upon whose door we have to pound for mercy. Rather, this son, this king, this God who becomes flesh and who becomes one of us, he cares for the people that he rules like a father. He died for his people. He liberated his people. He intercedes for his people. He will resurrect his people, and one day he will reign with his people. And, and you know this because you've seen it, but some people, some people over time, they get really mean and nasty and grouchy over time, don't they? And everybody dies eventually. But you see, this fatherly king does not change and he will reign forever. Now think about how this text right now, think about how this name, this title intersects with your lives right now. Think about how this overlaps with your lives even at this very moment. Because everybody, without any exception whatsoever, everybody wants the highest possible joy for the longest possible duration. Isn't that true? Did you not wake up this morning wanting the highest possible joy for the longest possible duration? Guess what? That is exactly what Isaiah is selling. The eternal, unchanging character and kingdom of Jesus Christ is the highest possible joy for the longest possible duration. In other words, all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished is everything you were created to need and enjoy forever. And yet, and yet the misery and unnecessary struggle and fear and anxiety and discouragement and maybe even despair happens in our lives because we look to find our highest joy in things that were never, ever designed to provide it. So that's the question. Is there anything right now in your life that threatens to take Christ's place? Are you seeking your highest possible joy in things that were never, ever designed to provide it? Because make no mistake, this eternal fatherly king who loves and loves the people that he rules in him is found the highest possible joy for the longest possible duration. And last but not least, the Messiah Jesus Christ is also called, number four, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And and, and isn't that interesting? He's both king and he's prince. Which is kind of like saying he's both sheriff and he's the deputy. He's both the president and the vice president. He is the king who rules the roost. And as the prince, he is his own second in command. What does this mean? We have to understand that princes in the ancient Near East... They were the ones who dwelt with the people. 
They were the ones who were with the people. They represented the people. In fact, they had the job of simultaneously representing the king to the people and representing the people to the king. The prince was the sacred go-between, the king and the people that he ruled. And you see, the connection here is that as the prince, Jesus Christ rules his people and he represents his people. He is preeminent over his people and he provides for his people. He is sovereign over his people. And yet he supplies his people with everything they need. And yet you notice the little addendum to the prince's title. He's not just the prince. He is the prince of peace. And the cool thing about peace is that it's not what you think. It's better than you think. The word in Hebrew is shalom. Shalom. And in the mind of every Hebrew, shalom was not some mushy, mystical ecstasy based on your feelings. Rather, shalom, get this, was when God would sovereignly break in and intervene in history and he would make all things be the way they ought to be. That is shalom. Because think about it, some people... They digitally remaster old films, don't they? And some people renovate cars for a living. Some people flip houses for a living. And you have to understand that Jesus Christ, when he returns, he is going to supernaturally remaster and renovate and flip the entire planet. That is Shalom. When Christ returns, he is literally going to reverse the curse and effects of sin and reform the planet from the inside out. And you see, this, this right here, this is why our personal holiness and sanctification is so unbelievably important. Do do you see the connection between those two things? The renovation of the planet and the renovation of our lives, do you see the connection between those two things? The connection is the power of Christ transforming our lives is a sneak preview to what Christ will do to the entire planet when he shows up. The global renovation of Jesus Christ begins in the lives of his people. You see, we radically pursue holiness and obedience and authentic life change, not merely to be good people, or to improve our personal quality of life, but, but as a witness to the world that the only one who can change the world is the God King, Jesus Christ. That's why I think it's clear, isn't it? These names, these titles of Jesus Christ reveal to you, these are Isaiah's attempt to persuade our stubborn, rebellious hearts that anything you could need or possibly want is found only in Christ. Get this now, listen very carefully. All of your deepest longings and desires and hopes are found in the God who became man for us and for our salvation. Which brings us to the third feature of the God King. The third feature of the God King, number three, his unconquerable kingdom. His unconquerable kingdom. I've said this before. Most people have no idea that right now we are living in the ancient ruins of a civilization that in the beginning was created perfect. Most people have no idea. I mean, we live in this advanced 
technological age which seems so thriving and, and, and bursting with life and yet most people have no idea that what it is is a mutilated version of the original. This planet is not what it once was nor what it will be again and what it will be again is exactly what Isaiah describes in miniature form but he describes it nevertheless. Look at verse seven, describing the king and the kingdom. He says, as for the increase of dominion and to peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it with justice and with righteousness from now and until eternity. The zeal of the Yahweh of hosts shall do this. Now I know that connect the dots is usually for kids. But Isaiah is connecting some dots here and he is not playing games. And the reason for that is because he just connected some of the most breathtaking theological dots found in the pages of Scripture. You know why? Because all throughout the Old Testament there's these scattered dots of promises of a king who will come and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And that is exactly what Isaiah gives us. And so very quickly... I'm going to give you five conditions of the kingdom. I'd say don't, don't try to write these down. Just, just listen and absorb the conditions of the kingdom found in verse 7. Condition number one, the impact of the kingdom. The impact of the kingdom. Look at verse 7. It says, as for the increase of dominion and to peace, there shall be no end. Think about it. Think about it. All the major kingdoms of history eventually got brittle with age and then they eventually faded into oblivion, didn't they? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, even America is not built to last. But here finally is a kingdom that will not decrease but only increase over time. Like fine wine, the dominion and peace of the future kingdom will only get better with age. Condition number two, the legacy of the kingdom. The legacy of the kingdom because notice the particular throne upon which the king will sit. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and he will uphold it. I mean, speaking of theological dots, this is the biggest dot in the entirety of the Bible, perhaps. And the reason for that is because centuries earlier, Yahweh promised to David that one day a descendant would come from his line and he would have an eternal kingdom and reign forever. And isn't this exactly what the angel Gabriel told Mary? Isn't this what he said to her in Luke 1, 31 through 33? Listen very carefully. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and you shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. And the Lord God shall give him, here it is, the throne of David, his father. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Eternal, invincible, unconquerable, unshakable kingdom. That is where human history is headed. Condition number three. The manner of his kingdom. The manner of his kingdom. 
Because notice, so, so different from every other empire in history, this kingdom will be established by two things, with justice and with righteousness. Here finally is a king who will take no bribes. Here finally is a king in whom there is no corruption. Here finally is a king in whom there's no cover-ups, no dirty secrets or scandals buried in the closet. Rather, when he comes, he will rule the planet with absolute sovereign, holy perfection. This is the king you have been waiting for. This is the king who can and must be trusted. Condition number four. Condition number four, the duration of the kingdom. The duration of the kingdom. Because you know, you know, there are plenty of ways to get a new leader to rule a country, right? Four-year elections, impeachments, retirement, assassinations. Those are all various ways to get a new leader to sit on a throne. And yet, Isaiah makes clear that the days are coming when all of those things will be ancient history. Look, look what he says in verse 7. The days are coming when Jesus Christ will take his rightful place on the seat of David. And notice what it says. He will be the only king forever. He will be the last leader in history. No more retirements, no more elections, no more impeachments, no more assassinations. He will reign forever and ever and ever. Condition number five, the guarantee of the kingdom the guarantee of the kingdom. Because the question is, how do we know, how do we know that any of this is is actually going to happen? I mean, what is the guarantee? How do we know that this is not just some wish of of, of Isaiah? Well, well, just kind of a, a roll of the dice here. I really hope this happens. How do we know this is actually going to happen? We know because of what Isaiah says at the end of verse seven. Look at the text. Kenat Yahweh tzavot ta'asazot in Hebrew the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall accomplish this. That's how you know. That is how you know that every single thing God has ever promised will take place, namely the zeal of Yahweh, which is the raw, unbridled, unwavering passion of God for his own glory. That is the head on the chopping block guarantee that everything he has ever predestined will come to pass. And that's it. That's the plan for history. And mark my words, that's exactly how it's going to go down, scene by scene, blow by blow. And when you stand back and you, you look at the Bible, doesn't it become clear that the entire plan of salvation is a love story, isn't it? And yet it's a love story of cosmic proportions. Not boy meets girl, but world meets the God who created it. But the world falls and runs after other lovers. But God, and subjects itself to eternal ruin and destruction. But God, in the end, wins his lover back. How does he do that? By entering into history as one of the very people that he created. And then slain for sinners, Jesus Christ willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. 
And right this very second, Jesus Christ offers to bankrupt penniless sinners full pardon for their sins, the eternal treasure of salvation to anyone who yields to him as the king and treasure of their souls. And so my last question for you this morning is, have you done so? Have you done so? Have you yielded to the king? Because what fools are they? What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? But you don't have to drink that wrath because you can have right now purchased and paid for in full the treasure of eternal salvation by yielding to the king and treasure Jesus Christ. And if you have not done so, I leave you with the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 11. Summoning, calling, inviting, enticing you to find in him what cannot be found in the counterfeit treasures of the world. He says, and I quote, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. O great King and Messiah, we acknowledge that you have all authority in heaven and on earth, that you are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. And even if we did not acknowledge that, Lord, it would not cease to be true. You are that, whether we know it or like it or believe it, or not. And yet we gladly acknowledge that, Christ. We gladly acknowledge your supremacy and your love and your eternality and the grace that you offer ruined sinners like us, ruined, hell-deserving sinners like us, Lord. And we confess we are weak, we are needy, Our hearts are naturally grown cold, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. And so I I plead with you right now that you would minister to the people in this room, that you would uphold them and strengthen them and encourage them and give them hope. And Lord, if there's anyone who, who is drifting in their hearts, who is growing cold, who is defying you, who is who is rejecting your word, I pray that you would break them in the way that you do. A tender breaking by showing them that anything outside of you could never ever satisfy the soul. So I pray, Lord, I guess what I'm asking is I pray that those in this room who may not know you, I pray that you would awaken them from the dead and open their eyes to see that you are a treasure of infinite value. We thank you so much for this time in your word, O Christ, and it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.